So if you're following Jesus, he's been up in this region way north, way north. Uh, he's been in the region of Tyre and Sidon, so he fed 4,000 people, mostly a Gentile crowd. And now he tells us here that he's gone into this district known as Caesarea Philippi. So when you're, when you're reading your Bible, you can read your Bible and have, have, have nothing else, like no other resources or anything, and you can study your Bible, you can read it. The Holy Spirit is working through the lives of believers to help us understand his word. But when you, when you see something like that and you go, okay, I mean, he just mentions that he's in Caesarea Philippi, it kind of, it should cause us to stop and go, okay, what is, what's, is there a significance about that city? Is there anything that I should know about that place or that district or that area? And if you, if you just do a quick, like, Google search for that or just have a, have a Bible dictionary or something, you can look at this and you can, you can see some insights that kind of help you even understand these things a little bit further. So this Caesarea Philippi, it's, it's an interesting place because, like I said, he's way north. He's outside of the, the realm of the Jewish people. He's, he's in a very, very different kind of place. And this city is known for worship of all kinds of different gods. All kinds of different beliefs kind of came together in this place known as Caesarea Philippi. It's named after Caesar and... Philip, the Tetrarch, like, who, he, he, Philip's the one who named it, and he named it after himself, and then he also decided to name it after Caesar. That's a good thing to do, so it kind of combines the two things together. Caesarea Philippi, but they, there's so much different kinds of worship there. In fact, ancient times in this place, they worshiped Baal. You may have heard of that false god in the Old Testament that the people worshiped, they worshiped the worship the, the god Baal. And that was a center. This was a central place where people worshiped Baal. There's also the Greek god Pan that they worshiped here. In fact, it was said, this, the mythology said that Pam was born in a cave right outside of this region. And so there's all these different kinds of religious beliefs that kind of come together to where the, you have this district, this area where just people believe whatever they want to believe. People have all kinds of different beliefs. People have all kinds of different paths that they're trying to figure things out and understand life and worship the right God or whatever. And it's in that place Jesus kind of pulls his disciples aside over into this district. And this, with this is the backdrop. This is the setting that he decides to ask these questions. It's just, just kind of interesting if you think about it. And so these, these two questions that Jesus asks, they're, they're crucial questions, one way more important and one more crucial than the other. But in the backdrop of this place where all these different types of religions practice worship of all these different kinds and of gods, Jesus asked this question. And the, the, the first question is the question that uh, the world consistently gets this wrong. You're going to see them tell Jesus this answer that's wrong, and for 2,000 years, the world has consistently got this question wrong. And here's the first question. Who do the people say that I am? Jesus pulls his disciples aside, backdrop, Caesarea Philippi, all this different worship of different gods, and he says, who do, who do people say that I am? What's the, what's the common idea about what people say, who people say that I am, and what I've come to do, and what I'm doing, what, what, what kind of where my authority comes from. What, that's the question, and it's a question that the world, people outside of Christianity have consistently and still today get wrong. You, you see that their answer is basically speaking mostly from the Jewish perspective, most, mostly from Israel's perspective of what people would say about him. Simon Peter and the rest of them, they're basically trying to answer this question. Who do people say the Son of Man is? Verse 14. 
They said, some say John the Baptist. You remember Herod said that? Herod thought maybe that John the Baptist, who he had beheaded and killed, had come back to life in the form of Jesus. It was just a few years ago, maybe, maybe, maybe less than a year ago that that happened, but that was not just Herod's idea. That was an idea that apparently was spreading, that maybe he's John the Baptist come back. John the Baptist was a prophet, and Jesus called him the greatest prophet. And so they also connected him to other prophets. Some people say that you're Elijah. There was a verse in Malachi that pointed to the fact that Elijah was going to come to prepare the way for the Messiah. And so maybe people had begun to think, well, this guy seems like he's a really good man of God, so maybe he's Elijah. Maybe he's the one that was promised. So they're pointing to one of the greatest prophets again. And so some people say that you're Jeremiah, which is interesting because you could have picked any of those prophets, but they said Jeremiah because if you think about Jeremiah's ministry, he was, he was a very sensitive, he was a weeping prophet, he was very concerned for the nation. He spoke um, a, a, a message of doom coming to the nation, and he also was criticized unbelievably. Jesus' ministry looks a lot like that in some ways. Or maybe one of the other prophets. And so this answer that they give is kind of that. Well, the, people basically think that you're a prophet, that you're a man that speaks for God, that, that you have some th good things to say from God to the people. But they were, as, as good of an answer as that is, it's not the best answer. It's not, it's not correct. It's not a full answer. So they, they were getting it wrong in that moment, but like I said, the world has constantly, consistently got this answer wrong. The world continues to say, yeah, it seems like a good good teacher. I mean, that's, that's the world's answer. He was a prophet or he was a good teacher, and we'd like to take him for that. Like, look at the things that Jesus said. He taught some good things, to, to, to love your enemy, to be kind, to, the golden rule, all these different kinds of things that Jesus taught us, and so the world kind of doesn't know exactly what to do, do with Jesus, and so they relegate him into this category of he's a prophet, spoke for God, he was a good teacher, maybe he's one of the ways that we can find a path to God. If we'll follow his instruction, if we'll follow what he's doing, if we'll follow everything that's going on, then maybe we can have this understanding of that. I'm, gonna go, I'm just going to stop and we're just going to pray real quick and we will continue on. I don't know exactly what's going on, but uh, our medical team, our safety team is going to help, help out. We've got a great team that will take care of that. Let me just stop and pray real fast. God, thanks for this day. God, we know that you want to accomplish great things. We know that you are in control, that you are sovereign. I just pray for whatever's going on with this situation, medically, whatever's going on here, I pray that you would um, work through all of our people. Um, God, use them as your hands to bring healing, to bring restoration, to bring comfort. And God, that you would just show your power, show your greatness, demonstrate it in a very tangible way. For all of us and that you would um, you would just help us God to learn from your word to focus on that and to give attention to that and God we thank you for that in the powerful name of Jesus amen so here's, here's what the world wants to do with Jesus he's a prophet he's a teacher he, he showed us some good things so he's he's an example look at how he lived and let's try to live like him he, he's he, we kind of relegate him to all these things. The world wants to put him in that category because they don't want to deal with him as God. They don't want to deal with him as Lord. That, that, that opens up a, a whole different door that we don't necessarily, the world doesn't want to walk through, so we try to relegate him in that. And, the, and, and you understand that the reason why we can say that the world is getting this consistently wrong is because Jesus can't just be 
a good teacher or a prophet and say the things that he said. But Jesus didn't say, hey, just, I'm just here for an example. He claimed to be God. That's why they killed him, because he claimed to be God. That's why several times they picked up stones. They were ready to kill him right then, because he was claiming to be God. Even in this text, Peter's going to say he's God, and Jesus is not going to deny it. He's going to say, whoa, 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 calm down. He claimed to be God because he was God. And so you've probably heard this quote before. C.S. Lewis is the one who gets credit for saying, kind of making this argument that he can't be just a good teacher. He can't just be a prophet because he said he was God. I want you to see that quote because it's so helpful for all of us to remember, and it's helpful for all of us as we speak into the world about who Jesus is. C.S. Lewis says this, Let us not say, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great moral teacher. He's not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Do you see what he's saying? Like, if this guy claims to be God and he's not, then you can't say he's a good teacher because good teachers don't say those things. He's either crazy or he's just a liar. He's a con man. And Jesus came and he claimed to be God. And so we, we can look at the world and we can see what they want to do. They're getting this answer wrong. Who do the people say that I am? Who does the world say that he is? Well, they're getting it wrong because they won't acknowledge the fact that he's God in the flesh. So Jesus kind of gives that as the background. Here's, here's the question. Who, what's everybody saying? And then he turns the question to the most important question. This is the question that we absolutely must get right. And he says it this way, who do you say that I am? He turns to his disciples, okay, everybody thinks I'm a prophet, everybody thinks I'm this, Jeremiah, whatever, like, but, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? This is the question. There's no more important question. You and I, every single one of us, we have to get this question right. And Peter gets it right. He, Peter speaks for the whole group here because that's what Peter does. So there's a question, somebody needs to say something, he's going to go first. He's not afraid. Right or wrong, he's going to speak, and this time he gets it right. Look at verse 16. Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter says two things. You're the Christ. That, that word Christ, that's a title. Okay, it's really easy in our culture to think that's his last name. It's not. Jesus was the Christ. It means he's the Messiah. It means he's the anointed one. It means he's the one that we've been waiting for for thousands of years. We've been hoping and praying and expecting the Messiah, God's, God's promised this Messiah to come, all this, and we've been looking for him, we've been waiting, we've been watching, we've been wondering, we've almost given up. And Jesus, Peter says, but you're him. You're the Messiah. You're the Christ. You're the rescuer. You're the Savior we've been longing for. It was a title of who he was and what he had come to do. 
And then he says, you're the son of the living God. In the background of Caesarea Philippi, all these different false gods, all these different dead gods, all these different, different kinds of worship, you're the son of the living God. You are God in the flesh. Peter gets it perfectly right in this moment. We know who you are. We've seen it. We've had a front row seat to all the things that you've done so far, all the miracles, all the power, all the authority that you've taught with. We've seen it, and we know you are the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. You're the Christ. And that's, that's who he is. He is. He's the son of the living God. He's God in the flesh. And that's important for us to know. It's, it's crucial for us to know this. It's crucial for us to understand this so that we have that answer, that we get that answer right. Colossians 2.9 says it this way. Paul's talking about Jesus here, and he says, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. In Jesus, all the fullness of deity, all, all the fullness of God dwells in this, in this person, in this body. He's God in the flesh. Peter's confession here is, if, if you want to boil it down into one, one phrase, here's his confession. Jesus is Lord. That's what, that's what Peter is saying. Jesus is Lord. He's the Messiah. He's the Savior. He's the Rescuer. He's the Son of God. He's God in the flesh. Jesus is Lord. And that confession, Jesus is Lord, is the fundamental Christian confession. That's why you have to get this right. In order to be a Christ follower, you, you have to be able to make that confession. The, the, the Bible says that. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. This is the fundamental truth of what it looks like and means to be a Christian, is to say that Jesus is Lord. And so this question, guys, I can't emphasize it too much. We have to. You have to get this right. You can, you can live in our world and you can see all the things that the world says about Jesus and who they say he is, and none of it matters because the only thing that matters is who do you say that he is. If you're under, if you're under 18, let me just speak to you real quickly today. I, all the way down to kids, like if, if your parents believe that Jesus is Lord and they, and they are following Jesus, then you, that's amazing, that's great. You have a head start on so many other people. If your parents are trying to point you to Jesus, but in the end, it doesn't really matter what your parents believe about Jesus. It matters what you believe. Who do you say that he is? You can go to this church, and we proclaim Jesus as Lord, and we proclaim the gospel every single week, and that's a good thing, and we want to continue to do that. And you can say, well, my church believes it. My church proclaims it. That's great. But in the end, it doesn't matter. What you believe is what matters. Who do you say that Jesus is? If you believe in your heart, confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. I believe God raised him from the dead. And so the, before we go any further, let me just say, if, you, if that's not true for you, you don't, you don't know for sure. Like there's this time in my life when you're sitting in this room, when you're watching online right now, if that's not, you don't know that's true for you, that yes, Jesus is my Lord. Jesus is Lord. I have put my faith and trust in Jesus because he's Lord and the rescuer, and the Messiah, and he, I know he took my place on the cross. If that's not true for you, man, you need to talk to somebody. You need to talk to somebody today about that. You need to talk to your, your parents. If you don't know for sure that Jesus is your Lord, that you've made that confession, 
You need to talk to a friend that brought you here. You need to talk to somebody that you trust. You need to talk to one of our church leaders. You need to talk to somebody because there's no more important question. We have to get this question right. We have to. And Peter's confession is it's so great. Jesus is the Lord. It's the fundamental Christian confession. This is what it looks like to be a Christ follower. Do you know that for sure for you today? It doesn't matter what everybody else says that he is. The only thing that matters is who do you say that he is. Man, I, I wouldn't come up here every week if I didn't want every single one of you to know the answer to that question and get it right. I'm not, not talking about facts. Well, I know, the, I know the, the answer because I've been told the answer. I'm talking about you believe it. It's changed you. The question's that important. My, my hope, my only hope for this this life and life after is because Jesus is Lord and what he's done for me. That's, that's what we're talking about. Now, that's the most crucial question. We absolutely must get it right. But let me just take it a little bit further here. Before we rush on, let me just take it a little bit further. And let me ask you this. Does your life reflect that that is true? Because, you know, it's, really, it's one thing to say, yes, I believe that Jesus is Lord. I've, I've put my faith and trust in Jesus as my Lord. I know that I have eternal security because of that. I've made that confession. I believe it in my heart. But if we, if we really believe that, it, it should show up in our life. It should show up in every single area of our lives, right? It should show up in every decision we make. It should show up in every relationship. It should show up in every approach. It should show up just as much Monday through Saturday as it does on Sunday. So the question is, is, is that your confession? Who do you say that he is? But who does your life say that he is? How does your life reflect the truth that Jesus is God, that he's Lord, that he has something to say about every single area of my life? How much does your life reflect that you have confessed that Jesus is Lord? Because it's a fundamental Christian confession, but it's really the, it should, it should show up in every single part of our lives. And, and the reality is that that's always a work in progress for us. We're always becoming more like Christ. We're always continually learning more about how we're following him. But is it showing up at all? What are some areas in your life where it needs to be aligned with the fact that you believe Jesus is Lord? It comes under that authority. Jesus is Lord. Now, what Jesus does in response to that is, first of all, he commends Simon. Verse 17 says, Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. Your daddy didn't teach you this. My father who is in heaven has revealed this to you. So you, you got the answer right. God has revealed this to you. That's why you got it right. And then Jesus looks back at Peter specifically in this moment, and he says some things that are important because what Jesus says, he takes this fundamental Christian confession and he connects it to this thing he's starting today called the church. And this, this confession, Jesus is Lord, Jesus takes that, commends Peter, and then says, this is, this is where I'm starting my church. This is the truth upon which I'm starting my church. And so this confession becomes not just this fundamental Christian personal thing, but it becomes a part of the people of God thing. It becomes founda the foundation of the church. Look at, look at what he says. 
I tell you, verse 18, you are Peter. He changed his name right here. He actually said you are Petrus. It's a masculine form of the, the word rock. You are Peter. And on this rock, I'm going to call you rock because on this rock I'm going to build my church. You're going to be the foundation for this thing called the church. It's just a cool thing. Jesus takes this personal confession that Peter makes. I believe you're the Messiah. I believe you're the son of the living God. And Jesus says, you're right, absolutely. God revealed that to you. Here's what I'm going to do with that. You're going to start my church. Based on that truth right there, you're going to start my church. You're going to be the foundation of this new people of God called the church. And Jesus connects it to that immediately. Now, man, there are so many different ways we could go with this right here. We, I know a lot of you guys know a lot about this passage and you've studied this passage. You know there's a lot of different rabbit trails we could jump off here because this passage has been so, so discussed and so talked about and so misinterpreted for a long time, a lot of different ways. That, 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 like we look at this and we go, okay, well, who's he talking about? Is he talking about just the faith confession? Is he talking about Peter? Is he talking about the collective group? What is he doing? And there's this whole idea that Peter became like the first pope just so, just so we know, there's no evidence of that here. Just to talk about what the text says, that's not what this is leading to. But it's very, very clear that he's saying, you, Peter, are going to lead my church. You're going to be the foundation of this thing. You watch the book of Acts develop, and who's the leader? Who's the spokesperson? Who's preaching on Pentecost? It's Peter. He took a very prominent leadership role in establishing the church in the book of Acts. They looked to him for a lot of different kinds of things, but he wasn't the end-all, be-all. In fact, after Acts chapter 15, we don't even talk about him anymore. But he had a huge role in that. So Jesus is absolutely looking at Peter and saying, Peter, I'm going to start this church with you. You, you. you spoke it. Your confession is right. And this is going to be the foundation of the truth. But just so you know, he brings all the disciples into this. In Matthew 18, we'll get there eventually, and he'll say the same thing to the disciples. In fact, Paul says it this way in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 and 20. So then... You, you and me, are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, the church. Look at this, verse 20. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So don't, don't make this something that it's not. Jesus is the head of the church. Jesus is the cornerstone. And he built his church on the foundation of these guys, these, these, these disciples, these apostles, starting with the leadership of Peter. That's really all this is talking about here. That's why in Acts it says that they devoted, the, this New Testament church, they devoted themselves, what, to the apostles' teaching. Because Jesus had said, this is the foundation right here. This, this confession, Jesus is Lord, your insight that God has given you that, that's going to be the foundational truth of our church. That a church exists to proclaim this to the world. Jesus is Lord. There can be all kinds of gatherings and there can be all kinds of things, but if it doesn't proclaim the gospel, if it doesn't proclaim Jesus is Lord, it's not really a church. That's why we can gather together and we don't all have to be like common interests. We all think the same. We all vote the same. We all do the things the same. We don't have to do those things. Why? Because we are united under one bigger truth than all those other things. Jesus is Lord. That's what unites us. That's what makes us the church. That's the foundational confession of the church. And then Jesus says some things about the church that I think are really significant. I think they tie this all together. and They show us how 
that answer to that question is crucial, and then it leads us into a community called the church that is really, really important. It's a big deal. The first thing that Jesus says about the church here is that it's, it's unstoppable. I want you to see what he says. Verse 19. Uh, sorry, back, back 18, the back part of part 18. He says, first, I tell you, you're Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church. And then look at what he says. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Once again, another part of this passage that's really interpreted weird. Because that, that phrase, gates of hell, the best translation for that is really gates of Hades. It's not, it's not referring to, like, where, where Satan and the demons hang out. It's referring to death. So there's this idea that we look at that, we say, oh, gates of hell, okay, so that's what the church is doing. Like, we're going to all rally together, you know, get our Bibles, and we're going to go storm hell, (laughs) and we're going to defeat the devil and all of his minions. That's what what it sounds like. Like, that's why you hear people say, that guy right there, man, he's he's so on fire for the Lord, he'd storm hell with a water pistol. Like, that's, people say that, and you're like, they're, they're, didn't know what Jesus said? No, that's not what Jesus said. That's not what he's talking about. He's literally talking about death. The gates of Hades, death. Death will not prevail against this church. Nothing will stop it. It's a, it's a foreshadowing. It's not just saying the church is unstoppable and death can't swallow it up, but it's a foreshadowing of what he's going to do. He's going to conquer death in the grave. He's going to defeat it. So the, the, if you're part of the church, death doesn't have a victory anymore. Death doesn't have a sting anymore. Why? Because Jesus defeated it. So the the gates of Hades, the death can't prevail against the church, what God is doing through the church. The church is unstoppable. And the next thing Jesus says is that the church is the steward of God's blessings. Now we can look at verse 19. He says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Here we go again. This idea of keys of the kingdom of heaven People have read that, and they said, oh, I know what this means. Peter gets to decide now who gets in and who gets left out. We have this picture that has come from this phrase, this one phrase that tells us that Peter is sitting at the pearly gates. Old St. Peter, there he is. When you die, he's the first person you're going to see, and he's got some questions. What's your name? What's your quest? What's your favorite color? He's going to be asking that stuff. Pearly gates. We, We have this whole genre of jokes about people dying and, and, and then they showed up at the pearly gates and there's St. Peter ready to ask them some things. There's a doctor, there's a lawyer, there's a teacher. All those jokes are wrong. It's not understanding this passage correctly. Those jokes are, they're, they're meaningless. You've heard those jokes before, right? Like you shouldn't, you shouldn't tell those jokes. They're, they're, they're crazy. I mean, like Brett Favre and Peyton Manning died. They showed up at the pearly gates. St. Peter met them, of course. He said, come on in, guys. Hey, don't put your theology in this. Come on in. I'm going to show you your mansions that we've prepared for you. And he takes them down this path, and there's two houses pretty close to each other. And one of those houses has an a, a Indianapolis Colts flag hanging outside of it. I'm with you, Mark. One of them has a Green Bay Packers flag. And, and they looked at these houses, and they're nice houses. I mean, they're, they're big houses, and you could tell there's lots of rooms. And you can see inside the window, there's a big old table with lots and lots of food. There's a big yard. 
I mean, they can play football, pretty obvious. And they're pretty, they're pretty excited about it. And then all of a sudden, they realize that as they're looking at their houses, they look past their houses, and you can see this path goes up this hill. And at the top of this hill, there's this huge house. It makes their houses almost look small. It's a huge, I mean, it's big old columns, bigger yard, bigger table, bigger, more rooms, all those things. There's a huge house and has a huge Dallas Cowboys flag hanging. <laughs> and Peyton Manning's like, hey, St. Peter, I don't want to be rude or anything, but like, can you just answer a simple, like, why is Troy Aikman's house so much bigger than ours? And St. Peter said, oh, I'm sorry for the confusion. That's not Troy Aikman's house. That's God's. That joke was brought to you by 1995, just so you know. <laughs> if you're 21 or under, you have no idea what I'm talking about right now. So that joke and all the jokes like it are ridiculous. You hear somebody start a joke by saying, oh, this guy died and he showed up in St. Peter's at the pearly gates. Just stop them and tell them that's not theologically correct. You'll be the life of the party. <laughs> they will invite you back, I promise. But it's from a false understanding of this this passage, it, Jesus is not saying you get the keys to the kingdom of heaven as the church, as the leader of the church, and you get to decide who's in and out. No, that, that phrase, the keys of the kingdom of heaven, first of all, kingdom of heaven, when Jesus is talking, he's talking about the kingdom of heaven that's coming to earth. And the keys that he's talking about, it's not the keys to the gate for admission, he's talking about the keys to the closet, to the storehouse, to the, to, to the warehouse where they keep all the blessings. And what Jesus is saying is, you as the church are the steward of God's blessings on this earth. You are, I, I'm going to bring blessing to the whole world through what? Through my church. At IGO we teach this thing, that this core value called the hope of the world, that the church is the hope of the world because of these kinds of things that Jesus is saying I'm bringing blessing to the whole world. I'm going to do it through my church. You got the key. Open up the closet. Open up the warehouse and let the blessings flow. Be a blessing to your community. Be a blessing to your neighborhood. Be a blessing to your city. Be a blessing to all of the earth because you got the keys. That's what he's saying. The church is the steward of God's blessing. And then he also says this. The church obeys and carries out God's will on earth. Look at the last part of 19. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Well, before that, he says, whatever you bound, bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Th this idea that the church gets to say, this is permissible and this is not. This is how you should do things and this is how you don't do things. Now, this is one of those places where our English just doesn't quite fully we're not able to fully translate the Greek and the, the way the verbs are used here, and I want to get into the details of this, but here's what it's really saying. It's really saying that when, you, when the church makes a proclamation, it's because God has already made that proclamation. That the church is just representing God on earth. That, that's the role that we play. We represent him. When we say something is permissible, it's not because we're making up rules and then God's got to follow them. No, it's saying when the church says this is permissible, this is how we should do things and this is what we shouldn't do, it's because God has already decreed that. That's why you've got to find a church that is only preaching the Bible and not just a bunch of opinions. Because we, we have this role of representing God on this earth. We have this role of obeying God's will on earth, carrying out God's will on earth. Church is the hope of the world. This church that Jesus is establishing, is, it's unstoppable. It's opening up the blessing, bringing a blessing to the whole world, and it's 
representing God on earth. That's what we are doing. That's why this is something you got to be a part of. That's why he connects your personal confession to a people. And there shouldn't be a personal confession without a, a confession without a connection to a church, without connection to a people. That's why we want you to be a member here. That's why I want you to covenant with us here so that we can speak for God on your behalf. It's a huge, huge deal. And, and so that's the things that Jesus is saying. He's connecting all this truth and this foundational confession with his new people. And there's one phrase that he said that I don't want to miss. I, I want to make sure we get it. And it's, it's in verse 18. He says, and I tell you, you're Peter, and on this rock, and look at what he says, I will build my church. And don't miss that. Here's what Jesus says. I will build my church. You can take every single word in that sentence, and, and man, it's important. Jesus says, I. He's doing the building here. He's not dependent upon us. We get to help him. We get to join in on this. But it, Jesus is the one building the church. The church grows is because Jesus is growing the church. We, we sow seeds. We plow. We plant. We water. God makes it grow. Jesus is the one who's building this church. That's why it's unstoppable. It's not because we're so smart. It's because Jesus is building this church. He's going to do it. What does he say next? We'll build. It's not, I'm hoping that I will get this right. I hope that I'll build the church. I hope that I'll let, it won't, it won't be stopped. No, I will build my church. That's why when we Stephen, when we pray for the church in South Dallas and all the things that they, they haven't even done yet, we know Jesus is going to build that church. He's got this. We're going to two services. Well, I hope, I hope people still come. Hope, we, hope in July we all feel like we still needed that, right? Well, it's not up to us. Jesus is going to build his church. We're just going to trust him with it. I will build my church. He wants to build his church. Will build doesn't... That word is not associated with a building, by the way. It's a people. I'll build my people. This church word means assembly. Ecclesia, the assembled ones. He's going to build his assembly of people. That means that they get together. That means that they assemble. That ought to be something really, really important to us because that's what makes us the church. We assemble together and proclaim Jesus is Lord. But he's doing it. He says, it's my church. I will build my church. We, we're his. You, me, every single one of us, we're his. You, you, leaders, as leaders of this church, hopefully we'll be here. We may come, we may go. Doesn't matter. It's his church. We're his. People in this church, you can come, you can join. Some people have left. Some people will come, some people will go. Guess what? It's all his people. It's my church, he says. Not my church, not Kai's church, not right. It's Jesus' church. That gives us a lot of comfort to what we're giving ourselves to, doesn't it? It's okay. How many people he gives us, how many people he takes away? So it's his church, his people. I will build my church. He's not, he didn't say, I'm going to build my hospitals. They're important. I'm going to build my schools. They're important. And all these other institutions. That's not what Jesus is here to build. He's here to build a people called the church. To proclaim his message to the world. To open up the storehouses of heaven and bring that blessing to the earth. I will build my church. That's why we want to be a part of this. That's why I want to be a part of it. 
because I know it's not up to me. He's building his church. So I want to be there. I don't want to miss that. When you give yourselves to that, when you give yourselves to building his church, being a part of what he's doing here, your life will always count. Your life will always be significant. You'll, you'll, you'll find that purpose that we're all desperately looking for. That last verse, he, he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. And so can I just make sure we all understand that most of the time when Jesus tells his disciples something, we're supposed to do it too? Not this one. <laughs> he told them not to tell anyone. Why? Because they didn't really understand what they were saying when they said he's the Messiah. You'll see that next week. Peter got it right here. Next week he's going to get it really wrong. They didn't really understand what a Messiah was yet. So he doesn't want them telling anybody yet. But for you and for me, we know who he is, what he came to do, what his purpose is, what his mission is. And he says, take this message to the world. Let's be that church that takes this message and proclaims it to every nation, tribe, and tongue. Because it's a church that he is building. It's unstoppable. So let's take those blessings to the world. Let's carry out God's will on earth. And let's see him be glorified like that. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth of it. Thank you for the reminders that we, we always need from it. And God, I pray that you would help us, God, each and every one of us to come to that place where we confess with our mouth and with our heart that you, Jesus, are Lord. God, if there's anyone that hasn't made that confession, hasn't, hasn't come to that understanding, hasn't put their faith in you, I pray that today would be the day of salvation. You'd lead them to a conversation where that would, that would happen today. You'd draw them to yourself. And God, for the rest of us, I pray that we would show that you are Lord in how we live our lives and how we engage and serve this body that you call the church. And it would be for your glory, God, and all the earth. And we thank you for that. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.